Well, last Sunday, it was an easy choice. I was out the door, 6.30 in the morning, headed to an assembly in Chicago to preach a message there. And uh, without even thinking, I grabbed this mask from Emmaus Bible College. That's the mask that I usually always wear, but this morning, a dilemma. Do I grab my Emmaus Bible College mask, my face covering, or do I grab my UNI Panthers <laughs> face covering this morning? I'm a graduate student in their doctoral program there. I've never been, well, I've been on campus many, many moons ago. I haven't been on campus in a long time, but whenever I get my chance, I wear my Panthers mask. <laughs> but let me tell you about Emmaus. I'm, a, I'm an instructor there. I teach in the teacher education program. I prepare school teachers. And this semester, I have the privilege, privilege of teaching a course in children's literature. Literacy is one of my areas. And then I also teach mathematics, how to teach kids math. Oh, I love math. How many here love math? Oh, good. Oh, my goodness. I'm amongst friends. This is wonderful. This is going to be a good message this morning. But do pray for us at Emmaus. Our case count is on the uptick a little bit. We haven't reverted to wearing masks on campus yet. Uh, but we are in person and we're grateful for that. So pray that the Lord would just spare our campus uh, from any kind of outbreak like that. Pray for his grace that health would just continue on the campus this semester. Well, I hope that your study in the book of Hebrews has been both an enlightening one and an encouraging one. And this morning, as has been announced, we come to the 11th chapter. Hebrews chapter 11, a well-known portion of the Word of God, has been much loved by generations of Christians. Here you have a list of prominent Old Testament saints who really serve as heroes to us. They are heroes not because they were sinless or lived perfect lives. They are heroes because they provide for us positive examples of faith and how to endure in their walks with God. This chapter has been called many things. The honor roll of Old Testament saints. The Saints Hall of Fame. When the saints go marching in. The Great Hall of Faith. The heroes of faith. And even the heroes who endured by faith. If you're looking for a hero who can show you how to live by faith, then there, right here in our text today, is a list of individuals that's as good as it gets. Actually, the list in chapter 11 culminates in chapter 12 with the penultimate hero, model of endurance, where it says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the past 30 years or so, young people in America 
seem to be looking in all the wrong places for a hero who can inspire them, one they can imitate. The following was written by an elementary school teacher in the late 1980s. She writes this, One day last spring, I stood before 20 third grade children to see if there were any heroes inspiring them. I asked each child to write down three names of the greatest people they had ever heard about. Michael Jackson, Brooke Shields, and Boy George, said a small blonde-haired girl. Michael Jackson, Spider-Man, and God, said another boy, naming a new holy trinity. <laughs> when the other children answered, Michael Jackson's name appeared again and again. But Andrew Jackson? No, never. Or Washington? Or Lincoln? Or any presidential immortal? No. Ronald Reagan did appear twice, but he came after Batman once and Mr. T. <laughs> I heard no modern equivalents to Charles Lindbergh or Amelia Earhart, America's beloved lone eagles. In answer to my request for heroes, I expected to hear from the kids such names from pop culture as Michael Jackson, Brooke Shields, Spider-Man, and Mr. T. But I had not expected to hear the replies of eight of my third graders who said, me. Their heroes were themselves. And then she writes this, it is sad enough to see the faces on Mount Rushmore replaced by rock stars and cartoon characters. But it's sadder still to see the faces on Mount Rushmore replaced by a mirror. When you hear a story like that, you can't help but wonder what has happened to our culture and where is it headed? No matter where you look, in our culture today, from Oprah to Deepak Chopra, young people, old people, all people are encouraged to find the hero that is in each side of us, every one of us. But as a Christian, if you are looking for a hero, a positive example of how to live a life that pleases God, of how to walk by faith, and not by sight, then the examples here in Hebrews 11 and 12 will serve us far better than seeking a hero from our culture or even looking to ourselves. The writer of the book of Hebrews has already provided some negative examples, those whose unbelief should be avoided. The people of Israel wandering through the wilderness in chapter 3, for example. But the persons, all of them, in Hebrews 11, are all positive examples of 
trusting in God. And their lives are worthy of imitation. Let's take a look at verses 1 through 7 this morning. And take a look at the first three individuals listed there. To see how their faith made incredible things possible in their lives. The faith of Abel, the faith of Enoch, and the faith of Noah. Hebrews 11 verse 1. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for, being convinced of what we do not see. For by it, the people of old, or the ancients, received God's commendation. By faith, we understand that the worlds were set in order at God's command, so that the visible has its origin in the invisible. By faith, Abel offered God a greater sacrifice than Cain. And through his faith, he was commended as righteous because God commended him for his offerings. And through his faith, he still speaks, though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he did not see death. And he was not to be found because God took him up. For before his removal, he had been commended as having pleased God. Now, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For the one who approaches God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, when he was warned about things not yet seen, with reverent regard, constructed an ark for the deliverance of his family. Through faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This well-known chapter in Hebrews begins with seven verses, all of which talk about, describe faith in the unseen, having faith in the unseen. And these seven verses reveal that God commends individuals as pleasing him when they trust in him. And that trust works itself out in a life of obedience to him. The phrase by faith appears 18 times in these 40 verses. The writer uses that repeated phrase to construct a chronological list that presents numerous examples of believers' faith and their faith in action in particular. The writer wants to tell a true story, a story about the various ways that believers across many millennia were commended because they trusted and they obeyed responsively to God's word. Our passage today begins with an implied question. What exactly is faith? Now, as believers in Jesus Christ, when you and I usually think about faith, 
we typically define faith in terms of redemption, in terms of salvation, in terms of believing in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins and for eternal life. And this understanding, a soteriological one, is absolutely accurate. But Hebrews 11 does not exclusively focus on saving faith. Rather, verse 1 provides us with a very broad description. A description of what the essence of, what's at the heart of, what's the nature of, what's the basis of faith in God. The, the essence or basis of biblical faith found in translations like the NIV or the ESV translate it two ways or two things that they focus on. Number one, faith is being sure of what we hope for. That is, having a sense of assurance inside of us. And secondly, it is being convinced or being certain of what we do not see. That is, having a certainty that there are realities which we cannot see with our physical eyes. The King James Version conveys a slightly different understanding of verse 1 by translating two Greek words as substance instead of assurance and evidence instead of certainty. And it goes like this. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. You can read commentary after commentary and read about the many, much more intelligent men and women than I who debate the exact meaning of these two Greek words. But I tend to agree with Bible teachers like Ray Stedman, who thinks that the King James Version here is more in line with the argument of the writer of Hebrews. Stedman writes this, To say faith is the substance of things hoped for, that means it is to see faith as being able to enjoy in the present something intended largely for the future. I also like what J. Oswald Sanders has said. He said, Faith enables the believing soul to treat the future as present and the invisible as seen. In other words, by exercising faith in God's word, believers take future rewards and future experiences that God promises to give us. These are not wacky ideas that we come up with. This is what God has promised to give us. And we turn those things that we hope for into some kind of spiritual substance right now. Something that our minds can grab onto. 
can hold on to, can cling to in the present time while patiently waiting to experience those realities in the future. And when you stop to think about it, the essence or the basis of faith and how faith works, it's not just true in the spiritual realm. We can see and often experience this kind of faith in our everyday lives. When I go to the gas station to put fuel in my car, I take out my credit card and I slide it into the machine at the pump. And when that machine approves my purchase, it means that that business believes that I'm the authorized user of that card. And it believes that that financial institution will eventually pay the cost of that fuel. And it believes that my financial institution trusts me to pay that bill when the credit card statement comes in a month later. And it even includes belief on my own part that I'm going to be able to pay that bill when that statement comes in a month from now. When you think about it, there's a lot of faith happening in that one simple financial transaction. We exercise faith every day in all kinds of ways. Now, I will have to say, my credit card company doesn't really have that much faith in me because they know I will pay those statements because they're ready to tack on some charges if I don't. And if I delay for too long, they just shut the card down. They deactivate it. How can faith give substance to things hoped for and evidence to things not seen? Well, here's another example. My 401k company does it regularly. The company that holds my money and makes the investments for me, and good thing they do, I have no idea what I'm doing, so I just trust them to make those investments for me, for my retirement account, they give substance and evidence that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing with my money. Now, they don't send me pictures of the money, they send me a financial statement that uses numbers instead to represent the amounts. And that is how they give substance through a statement that someday those funds will be there that I hope to use. I trust them. I don't demand from them that I go into their institution and let me in your vault and see my stacks of cash sitting there. I trust. I receive statements today. That gives me substance of things hoped for. Evidence of the money that I don't see right now. When we exercise faith in the words and the promises of God, we not only have something on the inside, assurance and certainty, 
We do have those things, to be sure. But we also have some kind of spiritual substance through our faith of those material realities that I will receive in the future, to be enjoyed someday. You know, God doesn't take you on a field trip to heaven and say, come here, let me show you, I don't know if it's a mansion, but let me show you the place that Jesus is preparing for you right now. He doesn't take us on a field trip to prove that he's doing that. But he does give us a promise in his word that when we get there in our resurrected body someday, that place will be ready, waiting for me. Physical eyesight produces evidence of visible things. But faith, faith, that's spiritual sight that enables believers to see invisible things or things that are promised to them right now. And when you and I exercise that kind of faith in God, when we believe in his benevolent character, when we believe that he truly loves us and cares for us and provides for us, when we depend on him for life itself, that pleases him. He is well pleased with us. And one day, he promises to reward you and me if we exercise that kind of faith in him. Many unbelievers think that this kind of religious faith is untenable because, you know, faith just doesn't seem to be a reasonable approach to life. One reason why unbelievers might find religious faith unacceptable and even foolish probably has to do with their understanding, their definition, and their misconceptions of biblical faith. A number of people define religious faith like the little girl in Sunday school who, when asked the question, what is faith? replied, well, faith is believing what you know ain't so. A lot of people think that's faith. That's biblical faith. You know, she probably attends a church in Dubuque. I'm sure nowhere in Cedar Falls would a little girl ever say that. Unbelievers might be religious. They might enjoy their religious tradition. They might even find some social benefit to participating in a religious community. But deep down inside, they don't believe that this stuff is real or true, at least not true to life as we know it. It's not true like science true. It's not true like history true. It's more of a story. It's more of a myth. And you know, I have a religious faith because, well, it's really just one way to help me have a more optimistic outlook on life. Skeptics and critics of religious faith 
are convinced that religious people like you and like me, well, we suffer from a delusion. They chalk it up to nothing more than just mere psychological wish fulfillment so that religious people are able to cope with and deal with the harsh realities of life. Believing in God, it's like believing in the tooth fairy or the Easter bunny or Santa Claus. By the way, speaking of Santa Claus, did you know that there are three phases in every man's life? Phase number one, as a child, he believes in Santa Claus. Phase two, as an adult, he gives his children Christmas gifts and behaves like Santa Claus. And lastly, as an old man, he ends up looking like Santa Claus. <laughs> White hair and a stomach that resembles a bowl full of jelly. <laughs> but none of these misunderstandings or misconceptions of biblical faith are accurate. Biblical faith is not blind faith. It is not a leap into the dark, a leap into uncertainty. It's not even a gamble. Biblical faith is based on what is objectively true. It is based on what is real. It is based on what is good. And Christians find answers to these significant questions in the Bible. Because the Bible is the Word of God. God's Word is not only given to us as our authority, and it tells us how to live life well. It, it is that, and it does that. But God's word is also evidence of our faith. Biblical faith is not blind faith. It is a faith that is reasonable. And it's reasonable because it is based on the evidence in the word of God. The Apostle John writes in his gospel and in his biography of Jesus, these things are written so that you might believe. The evidence is there before the belief. John, who was right there on the scene with Jesus Christ, provides eyewitness evidence that Jesus truly is the Son of God and the Savior of the world, and that he did rise from the dead. The Bible claims these things because the Bible claims to be a revelation from God. Now, admittedly, admittedly, we cannot prove with the kind of proof that skeptics are looking for that the Bible is the Word of God. And by taking them to the Bible and showing them verses in their mind is circular reasoning. And they're right. It is circular reasoning. You can't prove the Bible to a skeptic by using the Bible. It doesn't make any sense to them. But what we can do is we can show that the Bible is a reliable source of information. Historical information. Scientific information. 
geographical information, archaeological information, cultural information, and on and on and on. And because the Bible can be shown to be consistent and reliable, therefore, it is reasonable to believe the claim that the Bible is the Word of God, that it can be trusted, and that I should live by this book. The Bible is just one form of evidence of our faith. Another form and an argument for it is given to us in verse 3 of our text. By faith, we understand that the worlds were set in order at God's command. There are two differing explanations for the origin of the universe. One is scientific speculation, and the other is divine revelation. Both explanations require acceptance by faith. But the origin of the universe, truthfully, has been a long-standing problem for atheistic scientists. And the real debate is not science versus faith. The real issue is that the worldview of the atheistic scientist refuses to consider any evidence or argument that would allow for a transcendent or a supernatural cause to explain the origins of the universe. It's not faith versus science. It's their worldview that won't allow that at all. The physics Nobel Prize winner, who was a contributor for proving the Big Bang Theory, Arnold Penzias, said this, Astronomy leads us to a unique event, a universe which was created out of nothing, one with a very delicate balance needed to provide exactly the right conditions that are required to permit life and one which has an underlying, and then he adds parenthetically, one might say supernatural plan. Here is a, a reliable, acceptable scientist saying these things. It is not just from the Word of God. We choose to believe that the physical universe was formed in response to the powerful Word of God. We trust that God's Word is an invisible power that produces visible results. And the only way humans can fully know who He is and that He created the world, how this world really began, it's only because He has chosen to reveal it to us in the truths of the scriptures. They are not products of our imagination. From a Christian perspective, it is far easier to believe in the rational intelligibility of the universe and arguments from an intelligent design rather than to accept the universe and everything in it 
as happening as a result of a mindless, purposeless, natural process which did not have humans in mind. So what happens to believers who choose to trust in God's revelation? Well, according to verse 2, God does something when we do that. He commends them. He commends you. And according to verse 6, God says that he also rewards those who seek him by faith. Because when we seek God by faith, the text tells us he is well pleased with us. And now we come to the first three Old Testament heroes who were approved by God for their faith. Faith. The first example is in verse 4. Abel, the younger brother of Cain. We go back to Genesis 4 and we read in that narrative that each brought an offering at the appropriate time which reflected his occupation. Cain, the farmer, brought fruits and grains. Abel, the shepherd, he brought fat from the firstborn of his flock. The narrative tells us that God accepted Abel's offering because it was better than Cain's offering. We are not told in Genesis why Abel's offering was better. Here in Hebrews 11.4, we discover that Abel's sacrifice was better or greater because it was offered by faith. That is what made it better. And thus, God accepted it. We can infer that Cain did not give his offering by faith, even though the text doesn't say that. Ray Steadman comments on the various explanations offered and he cautions the Bible student to be very careful about reading into the Genesis story any hidden reasons for God's acceptance of Abel's offering and his rejection for Cain's. What we know for sure is that Cain did not offer it in faith, but Abel did. And because he offered it in faith, God was pleased and God accepted it. Cain grew very angry with God for rejecting his offering. And God even gave Cain an opportunity to repent. But he rebelled instead. And in his rebellion and anger and jealousy, he committed fratricide against his younger brother, Abel. And the text tells us it was a violent and brutal first-degree murder. The focus in the verse here, though, is on Abel, not on Cain. And it says here that by faith, he speaks even though he is dead. It's a direct allusion back to the Genesis 4 passage, verse 10, where God says to Cain, your brother cries out to me from the ground. 
In Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, when Jesus opens the fifth seal, it says there that there are souls, souls that are under a temple there, under an altar there. And those souls had been violently killed. Why? Because of the word of God and because of their testimony. They're martyrs. And then it says they cried out. How long, sovereign master, holy and true, before you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? Now, I don't think Abel is one of those souls under the altar in Revelation 6 there. But I do think that gives us a picture of what's going on here in the case of Abel exercising faith in God and continuing to speak. Abel is still crying out to God. He's still speaking. Oh Lord, how long before you give me justice and avenge my blood? And when you think about that, Abel still today is trusting God by faith that God will carry out justice. Abel has been waiting for at least 5,000 years for the justice of God. And the question for you and for me, how long should we wait? Enoch next appears on the stage of our heroes of faith in verses 5 and 6. And if we just read the verses here in Hebrews 11, we could easily make the mistake of thinking that Enoch walked with God his entire life. I mean, the man came out of the womb a good boy, never disobeyed his parents, never disobeyed God. That's the impression you might get if you only read this passage. But in Genesis 5, we're told that for the first 65 years of his life, he did not walk with God. He went along with mankind's wickedness on the earth until his first son was born at the age of 65. Not the son, the dad. God not only told him to call the boy Methuselah, which means the death will bring it. His death will bring it. But God must have told Enoch that someday I am going to destroy this world with a global flood. For the year that the flood came upon the earth during the days of Noah, that was the same year that Methuselah died. His death brought the judgment of God to earth. Enoch turned his life around, and for the next 300 years, he trusted God. He walked with God in a deep and abiding friendship. Enoch turned from trusting in human wisdom and in human folly to trusting in God, trusting in God's revelation. And he demonstrated that through obedience and fellowship with God. 
His relationship with God was so real, so genuine, so dependent, so intimate, that his daily life was pleasing in God's eyes. Because Enoch decided at the age of 65, I am going to walk by faith, no longer by sight. God was so pleased with Enoch and his daily walk in obedience that God did not want that fellowship to come to an end. He loved his relationship with Enoch so much that God said, I'm not going to let death interrupt this fellowship. Enoch, I'm going to translate you straight into my presence because I value your fellowship with me so much. It is possible to have that kind of relationship with God. Enoch did it. Oh, what an example of faith for all of us. The spotlight of our faith shifts to our last example, Noah, in verse 7. And we all know the account from Genesis well. Noah believed God's warning that a worldwide flood was coming, even though Noah was hundreds of miles away from the nearest ocean. Moved out of reverence for God, moved out of fear of the coming catastrophe and faith in God's plan to save his family, Noah spent the next 120 years building an ark of wood. You can imagine the mockery, the jeering which Noah must have faced day in, day out, day after day as he built this huge ship. And when he wasn't swinging an axe or a hammer, he was preaching about salvation through this ark to escape judgment. And when he finished it, he finally filled it with animals. The scornful crowds probably called him Nutty Noah until the raindrops started to fall. But God had already shut the door. And because Noah had an obedient faith, he and his family were spared. And by that action, he condemned the rest of the world. Noah's faith persisted despite massive resistance. And that kind of faith can only occur in our lives when, like Noah, God is present in our lives and our hearts. When we have a change of spirit that can only be caused by God's presence in us. Noah's sturdy, obedient faith stands forever as an incredible example of single-minded determination to please God, to let my life be lived in such a way that God is pleased, even if he asks me to do some wacky, insane things. These three men, they all chose to walk in trust and obedience. And truly, they can serve as our heroes and examples of how to live by faith. Our time is gone, so let me just close with a portion of a poem that I think communicates this truth. 
an encouragement to all of us. It says this, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather one should walk with me than merely tell the way. The eyes a better pupil, more willing than the ear. Fine counsel is confusing, but example, it's always clear. And the best of all the preachers are those who live their creeds. For to see good put in action is really what everybody needs. Let's pray. Father, we believe that you exist. We believe that you sent your son, your one and only son, to take our sin, to take the penalty for our sin. And by faith in him, we can be changed. We can have our sins forgiven. We can have our eyes opened. We can have eternal life. We can begin on a journey of walking in such a way that pleases you by faith. Father, embolden us in our faith. Our faith sometimes is little, but that doesn't matter because you can take a little faith and you can grow it and you can use it and you can do incredible things in our lives, just like you did in these people's lives. Thank you for their example. May we desire to know you, to believe you, to live for you the way these individuals did in their lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.